Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. I'm Professor Danielle Citrin, and I am the director of the LaTeX Center at UVA Law School. Um, and I want to start before I introduce our distinguished guest. I just want to thank uh, Peter Conklin and Rebecca Claff for being uh, always doing such an incredible job on our webinars. This is our final webinar for the school year. Um, so thank you so much for your help. And we the event um, tonight is being co-hosted by the Virginia Journal on Law and Technology, as well as the student group on, on law, innovation, science, and technology. So thank you so much to our student um, groups and our law tech fellows who always come out in force. Um, so tonight, uh, we're so lucky to have uh, Professor Richard Hassan um, from the University of California at Irvine Law School. He's the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science. Um, and he also co-directed or co-directs the Fair Elections and Free Speech Center at, at, um, at Irvine Law School. And um, he's coming home though um, next year. He'll be joining the faculty, lucky, lucky UCLA Law School, um, where he got his doctorate his, and his master's. So it is a homecoming, though apparently uh, Professor Hassan lives in LA. So it's fabulous <laughs> that you're joining the faculty at UCLA, UCLA Law School. Um, so tonight I'm going to uh, have, we're so lucky to have Dr. Hassan talk about his fabulous book, um, Cheap Speech. I, I wish we could see it without my background, how disinformation poisons our politics and how to cure it. I've been a huge Professor Hassan fan for a really long time, read his election law blog and everything he wrote on elections. And um, it's, so it's it's really such a joy to have you here. And Alex um, Schechner and I are gonna be asking questions and please our audience first, thank you so much for coming. It's finals. We know that you're studying. We really appreciate your taking the break to join us. Um, so put your questions in the chat box. And so we promise to include you. So now I get to turn it over um, to Dr. Hassan. Thank you so much for talking to us about your book. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. And uh, it's great to be with you. Uh, my students just finished their um, uh, semester and they're in the middle of finals. So I, I know what this time of the semester is like and I appreciate you coming out to talk about these issues. It's actually a pretty good week to talk about these issues with everyone focus on uh, Elon Musk's um, likely apparent purchase of Twitter. Uh, we'll see if he actually follows through. I think there are some questions about that. Um, so I'm gonna talk for about 15 minutes just to give you a kind of a broad overview of the book. And uh, I have a set of slides. These are slides I use when I speak to a non-specialized audience. And so I'm gonna skip over a bunch of material. I don't have to explain to this audience what a deep fake is. I know that you've already learned that and, and those kind of things. But let me just try to share my slides here. And just so I can give you kind of a brief uh, overview of uh, what I'm trying to do uh, in uh, the book. Um, there we go, are you seeing that? Yes, I'm getting a thumbs up from Danielle. Okay, um, so let me just start with the title, Cheap Speech. The term is not mine. It's actually a term that originates with a famous law review article by UCLA law professor, Eugene Volokh, who, who was a classmate of mine when we were both at UCLA Law School. He was a year behind me, but we took election law together uh, back in uh, 1990, I think it was. Uh, so. I'm feeling quite old. Uh, Eugene wrote this article in 1995 that appeared in the Yale Law Journal, where he was talking about what was going to happen when we were going to move from a position of media scarcity, when there were just a few broadcast networks, some newspapers, uh, 
where if you didn't like something that appeared in the New York Times, you could write a letter to the editor. And if you were very lucky, they might print it, but chances are it would just go into the wind and that would be it. To a period of uh, a, a, just a, a flood of information, he kind of predicted the rise of things like Netflix and Spotify and saw that what was going to happen was that the kind of intermediaries like news media that people relied upon to get information, that things were gonna change and these intermediaries were no longer going to be as important uh, as they were. The picture that uh, Eugene paints in his cheap speech article is a very optimistic one. And certainly there are lots of reasons to be optimistic and to be positive about our new speech era. Today, anyone uh, can put out any idea that they want and it can spread virally, it can spread far and wide. If you don't like something in the New York Times, you have ample means of expressing your views and the only limit on people uh, getting that is them finding you because there's so much information out there. We literally have the knowledge of the world in the palm of our hands. You can do a search on Google and, and find out all kinds of things. You can find people who uh, have similar interests, who have similar views. And so there is certainly a positive side to cheap speech, uh, but my book focuses on the dark side and particularly on the side related to what cheap speech has meant for American democracy. And I draw a rather direct line from the information revolution that we had to the situation that led to the insurrection on January 6th, uh, 2021. Uh, in the 19 days between of the November 3rd, 2020 election day and uh, uh, November uh, 21st, uh, Donald Trump was able to go to Twitter over 400 times to call the election into question to otherwise disparage or claim the election was rigged, that it was stolen. Uh, in a very famous post uh, that you see here on December 18th, he called for wild protests in Washington, DC. We know this activated a lot of people who were able to meet using the Facebook groups feature and they organized for political action, some of them violent action. And I would say that we came a lot closer to a disruption of the peaceful transition of power than most people realize with attacks that could have led to the death uh, or capture of many of our leaders. Today, millions of people believe the false claim that the 2020 election was stolen. And that's important not only for the legitimacy of the current administration, but also for the conduct of future elections. I'm very concerned and I have a kind of companion piece that just posted this past week at the Harvard Law Review Forum on the danger of stolen elections and election subversion in the United States, much of which depends on widespread belief in the false claim that the 2020 election was stolen. And so at the beginning of cheap speech, I make the argument that uh, if we had the same polarized politics of today, but the technology of the 1950s, we likely wouldn't have had the January 6th insurrection. We wouldn't have had the kind of lack of confidence in the integrity of the election process that we see. So there's a dark side when we lose these intermediaries. And so when I finished the first draft of cheap speech, I was predicting the possibility of election-related violence. And then as I was revising, we had the January 6th insurrection. I had to rewrite the entire book to take into account that it was not just a fear, but an actuality. And I'm afraid that the worst may not be uh, behind us. Um, so that's kind of the introduction to the book. And then what I do, and I'm just gonna skip over this video, which explains what uh, deep fakes are. Uh, what I talk about in 
um, the, the book's really divided into three parts. The first part, I talk about uh, what the problems are that are caused by cheap speech. Second part of the book talks about legal solutions to these problems. And the third talks about what could be done beyond law. And so uh, I'm just going to briefly talk about these. Um, uh, one of the big things that we see is that voters lack the same ability to be able to distinguish, distinguish truth from fiction. That there's a kind of what economists call a market for lemons problem, where bad information has an advantage. The economic model for local investigative journalism, which is valuable to voters, that economic model has dried up as advertising has shifted to Google and, and Facebook and elsewhere. Uh, it's very expensive still to produce good quality information. Um, not hard to produce low-valued information. That is the other meaning of cheap speech, this low-valued information. You can make a website that looks just as good as your local newspaper's website, but is full of lies or propaganda. And so one of the big problems we have is loss of voter confidence and decreased officeholder accountability as local news media declines and as counterfeit news sites arise. We've also seen in the 2016 and 2020 elections a rise of, of foreign interference in American elections. Uh, uh, we see the rise of misinformation and disinformation, not just related to voting, but especially related to voting, as well as conspiracy theories raising the potential and actuality of violence, rising anonymous political activity, social media not causing but exacerbating our polarization, an escalation of demagoguery. Uh, and to, just to give an example there, someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, 30 years ago, if she wanted to gain support, she'd have to curry favor with the leaders of the Republican Party. And to do that, she'd have to moderate her position. Today, she can go directly to supporters on social media, ask for $5. It's very inexpensive to raise money in this way. And the more of a demagogue you are, the more money uh, you have the potential to raise. Uh, and I also talk about the potential for uh, algorithmic manipulation of opinion. I, I give an example during the 2020 election, there was a period on Instagram where uh, if you search for Joe Biden on Instagram, you were returned, in addition to Joe Biden stories, positive stories about Donald Trump. But if you search for Joe Biden, um, you, uh, uh, if you search for Donald Trump, you did not get positive stories about Joe Biden. And uh, Facebook or Meta, which, which owns Instagram, explained that this was as a glitch. But of course, nothing would stop a social media company or a search company from deliberately doing this. And, you know, we've seen... Uh, new claims that um, uh, Facebook's algorithms put conservative emails more likely into someone's junk folder than liberal emails. So there's the potential for inadvertent and deliberate manipulation of political views uh, through the algorithmic decisions of these platforms. Um, one of the specific things I talk about in the book relates to uh, an argument that your professor made uh, with Professor Chesney about um, deep fakes. And it's uh, what, um, what they call the liar's dividend. Uh, the idea is that if um, people are um, unsure, if voters are unsure what information is true or false, and uh, it, it becomes impossible to tell uh, what's a reality when there's a deep fake, uh, is it real, is it not? then those who might want to lie about truthful information can simply claim that information is false. And we saw this, this was predicted in their 2019 California Law Review article, but we've already seen it in the wild just a few months ago when some video related to a Roger Stone documentary appeared at the Washington Post related to 
this documentary that's coming out, uh, which seemed to show Roger Stone's involvement with the January 6th insurrection. And Stone's response was, these were deep fakes. Uh, and so I think we're going to be in a situation, not necessarily where lots of people are going to be taken in by misinformation, although there's certainly some of that. And we certainly have that in relation to the 2020 election, but also that uh, we're going to have um, a situation where all information is going to be discounted. And that kind of market for lemon situation means that there's going to be less of an economic incentive to produce reliable information. I'm particularly concerned in the book about disinformation related to election integrity. Pretty amazing statistic. This is a, uh, a um, March 2021 survey. Not much has changed. Only 26% of Republican voters believe that Joe Biden won the election fair and square, despite all reliable evidence uh, to the contrary. Um, so what can law do? And in the book, I go through a whole bunch of legal arguments, uh, starting with fair election administration. It's much harder to lie and say an election was stolen if an election is fairly made. Most of my solutions are not about limiting speech. They're about giving voters better tools through augmented disclosure laws, through labeling deep fakes or synthetic media's altered. Uh, I do believe that you could constitutionally have a narrow ban on empirically verifiable false election speech. That is speech about um, lying about when, where, and how people vote, telling people that they can vote by text when they cannot vote by text, or telling people they need ID to vote when they don't, that this could be made a crime, and this kind of information could be constitutionally limited uh, on the platforms. I'll talk about the role of private defamation lawsuits and, and where the balance should be, as well as privacy protections like limiting micro-targeting of political ads, and ultimately, I don't think the solution are laws that require certain content to be included uh, or excluded, uh, aside from this narrow uh, ban on uh, empirically verifiable false campaign speech. But if we're worried that platforms have too much political power, I think the solution then is to break them up. That is to use antitrust law rather than speech law to deal with these problems. And one of the things I argue against is uh, laws that would require even-handedness, or as we've recently seen in Florida uh, and in Texas, laws that would require social media companies to carry uh, certain politicians, even politicians that might advocate violence or that might uh, relentlessly spread election lies like Donald Trump. Donald Trump has been deplatformed from Twitter and Facebook, and these laws would purport to put him back. Uh, I was somewhat surprised to see Justice Thomas, as well as Professor Volokh, and we could talk about this in the Q&A, make an argument that it would be constitutional to require these platforms to carry speech, just like I don't think that Fox News could be required to carry a Joe Biden speech, or that the New York Times would have to be required to carry a Donald Trump speech verbatim. Uh, I don't think you can require the social media platforms to do this either, because I think they serve a kind of curating function there. Their decision of what content to promote and demote, what to include or exclude, is a kind of editorial decision making, whether or not the platforms call themselves publishers. Uh, and then uh, I'm going to skip over, I, I go through in detail uh, in the book, the constitutionality, uh, the constitutional questions related to the ban on false speech uh, and the social media must carry regulation. We can talk about all that in the QA, uh, whether or not these laws would be constitutional. And one of the arguments I make is that. The Supreme Court's current approach to the marketplace, uh, to the First Amendment, this kind of marketplace of ideas approach, means that it likely would reach the wrong conclusion in a lot of cases. For example, the requirement that deep fakes be labeled as altered could run into the compelled speech doctrine. Uh, the requirement that 
um, spending on internet-based political ads be just that the funders be disclosed could run into the Supreme Court's new views about exacting scrutiny and disclosure laws under the Supreme Court's recent decision in the Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Bonta case. Uh, and I argue um, pretty strenuously against the Justice Thomas Eugene Volokh idea that you could require even-handedness in the uh, presentation of um, candidates uh, on social media. And then finally, uh, because law is not enough, the last part of my book talks about what kind of changes do I think we should have in relation to, um, excuse me, what kind of policy do I think we should have in relation to these laws? First of all, because Congress is unlikely to pass a lot of the laws I'm uh, discussing. And, and even if they did, the Supreme Court might not uphold all of them under its what I consider to be outmoded view of the First Amendment. So what else can be done or what could be done instead? I argue for um, both the public and employees of these companies to work together to pressure platforms to make changes in response to the serious democracy problems caused by cheap speech. We're seeing this now as Elon Musk is widely considered if he takes a, actually buys Twitter that he's gonna restore Donald Trump to the platform. There's gonna be some political response to that. I think we need to subsidize and bolster, especially local investigative journalism efforts, as well as efforts to minimize the reach of counterfeit news sites. Um, we should strengthen intermediaries that engage in truth telling. Uh, bar associations have been doing that, uh, going after lawyers who are election liars. Another suggestion I make in the book is that journalistic societies voluntarily come up with a kind of good housekeeping seal of approval that says, if you follow all of these steps, you look for two sources, you give a, uh, uh, someone you're writing about a chance to respond, then you get this little approval that you follow journalistic standards. That little symbol could then appear on social media sites so people would know, oh, this is a post from Los Angeles Times. They're at least trying to follow journalistic norms. Maybe this is a signal of quality. Uh, and more generally, and I talk about at the end of the book, uh, inculcating uh, values of truth, respect for science and the rule of law. And it's ultimately, I think, what we're dealing with here is not just a legal problem, but it's a social problem. And it's going to require, uh, there are gonna be a, some people who are not gonna be reached, but it's going to require that the center of the country be willing to engage in good faith, acceptance of truth and argumentation within the bounds of rationality. And if we don't have that, it's very hard to have a functioning democracy. And with that, let me turn it back to Danielle. Okay, so you've been alarmingly prescient. Uh, I had the early draft of your book, right? And the suggestion that we might have violence, and then we did, and you had to go, and, and the, the beginning is brilliant uh, of the book. That, that is your revision done quickly was just grabs you by the throat kind of thing and reading and, and thinking back on one six. So now here we are in this moment, you, you, know, you noted that Elon Musk is, let's imagine, let's, you know, let's do, let's look into your, your, you're so good at like projecting, I mean, a little scarily, right? What, what might happen, right? Musk, let's imagine that it goes through and Musk, what might you think he, he do vis-a-vis Trump, vis-a-vis content moderation, and maybe just react and respond to his recent comments, you know, about, I want, you know, the, the free speech that mimics, you know, what's law on the ground, um, does he have the chops to figure this out, right? And what do you imagine might 
happen. And then if it's okay, I'm going to ask you too, to talk a little bit about, I'm terrified of, uh, of the, to read the Harvard Law Review post, you know, the, the, your forum piece, because I know that it's also going to be scarily prescient, but let's first start with Musk. And then if it's okay to just give us a little taste of that piece as well, because it's really, I think, important to read both your book or read Election Meltdown first, the first book of yours, you know, one of the books I read and was like, oh God, we're in deep trouble, cheap speech. And then it sounds like the Harvard piece. So that would, please, thank you for reacting to that. So first, um, Elon Musk, you know, he's a pretty smart guy. He's been able to solve the problem of producing electric cars that people want to buy. I mean, that's a huge accomplishment. He, he's able to get people into space when um, the US government has been having trouble doing that. Uh, so, you know, I don't want to underestimate him. Uh, on the other hand, uh, his comments on Twitter, where he has about 80 million followers, about the same number that Donald Trump uh, used to have, um, they're either remarkably naive or they're calculated. Right, so you mentioned one of his tweets for over the last few days, which said, you know, if it's allowed under the law, then it's on the on the platform. And I was thinking, just from a purely business perspective, right? He is buying this company for forty-four billion dollars. Again, assuming this goes through, and I have serious doubts about whether the sale actually goes through, but assuming this goes through, he's spending forty-four billion dollars. I assume he wants to make a profit. Now, if what's going to be in my feed is going to be hate speech and pornography and sales for male enhancement pills, which is what you would have if there were no content moderation at all, it's not going to be a very attractive platform. And advertisers are not going to want to be associated with a lot of that stuff. So Nazis have a right to march in Skokie. Under the first, if you're using a First Amendment standard, Nazis have the right to just write whatever they want on Twitter and it's just going to be included. And I, again, I, I'm not saying we should have a law against Nazis being able to try to post. What I'm saying is, as, as a private company that's trying to make a profit and give people something that's valuable, I don't think we're going to want to see that. I don't think we're going to want to be, see Russian bots flooding with um, propaganda about how they're justified in the war in Ukraine. So. I don't think he's serious. Even some of these far-right websites, uh, far-right sites uh, like a, a Gab or, or Getter, uh, now I think Truth Social, are moderating content. Um, and you know, uh, so I, I I just don't think that's realistic. So maybe what he means is that they're not going to block political speech, maybe that's what he's talking about. So Donald Trump is coming back, right? That seems to be the message. Today, he posted this meme where he kind of showed himself on a, uh, I don't know if you've seen this, on an ideological scale where it was like a left-right scale and, and uh, like he never moves, but the left moves really far to the left and the right doesn't move at all, which also seemed quite naive about where politics is today in terms of who's moving more to the polls. but. Um, so maybe what he means is not really free speech for everyone, but we're not going to stop the, uh, the right from being able to get their messages out. Um, 
he rightly, I think, criticized Twitter, although I didn't like how he did it by personally attacking the, uh, the chief lawyer for Twitter. I think he was right in saying that it was a mistake for Twitter to have uh, demoted or, or hidden um, tweets from the New York Post related to the Hunter Biden laptop. And I write about this in Cheap Speech, and I wrote about it before it became clear in, over the last few months through articles in the New York Times and the Washington Post that this laptop appears to be genuine, or at least parts of it appear to be genuine. What I say in the book is that it was an overreaction to 2016. Tw Facebook and Twitter were so worried they were going to be taken in the way they were by the Russians in 2016 that they overreacted and squelched speech. I think there should be a heavy thumb in favor of free speech. But I also think when someone crosses the line and encourages violence, that be wild tweet, the one I put up there, I mean, I think that tweet is going to be the centerpiece of much of what we're gonna hear from the January 6th commission. Um, if, if what Musk means is he's going to restore Donald Trump and going to restore more um, right-wing propaganda, then I think there's going to be a political movement. There's gonna be a question as to whether or not Twitter, which I think skews left and which has a lot of elites who, you know, you and I, we are unpaid independent contractors for Twitter because we're producing content all the time, right? We're producing stuff that people wanna read and uh, you've got more followers than I do, but you're sending stuff out to people and they are um, enjoying the platform and they're seeing advertising because you're the talent. And, you know, am I gonna wanna be the talent? Uh, there's, you know, there's kind of a collective action problem here, but I think there's gonna be enough movement um, if Donald Trump is restored. Now, Donald Trump has, may have a contractual reason because he started up, up a competing company, Truth Social, to not come back on the platform, but we'll have to see. Um, but, you know, I don't believe that the sale should be blocked because I don't agree with his opinions. I think just like I don't like Fox News, I don't think it should be outlawed. I think it's the same kind of thing. Uh, but so, uh, you know, if you're worried that Twitter has too much power, break them up. It turns out Twitter, Twitter has a kind of very elite set of people who are on it. But in terms of volume, it's much smaller than Snapchat or TikTok, minuscule compared to Facebook. I think Facebook has 2 billion and uh, Twitter's in the hundreds of millions. Um, not clear to me that this is more than a vanity project of uh, Elon Musk if he actually goes through with it. Or more likely, given that he seems to be violating or potentially violating the disparagement clause of the contract, that this is a clause that says, you know, while he's going through the sale with Twitter, he can't say bad things about Twitter. He seems to be violating that. Maybe this is all just a ruse to make some money out of Twitter, to damage Twitter. I don't know. You're muted. So fascinated. I have to say my class, like I had our entire last class was like, responses and thinking through. I wish you were there. <laughs> Just you're, you're more, you're moderating. You always are like, A, you're, you lean heavy into speech and disclosure courses, your natural inclination as a, as a fair election scholar, which I admire so much about you. Just making me feel better, <laughs> like, you know, and, and just your wisdom about the, I didn't realize the contract and disparagement piece that is the acquisition is actually more complicated and it may be a play. Like, as you said really well, um, Rick, he's really smart. I shouldn't ast underestimate his smarts and this way in which there's a political move maybe here. You know, that is, he's playing some game here, right? So I'm feeling, I'm, I'm feeling a little better. <laughs> I have to say, I've been like having worked so hard 
with the content moderation teams and with Vijaya, you know, with the chief legal officer and the idea that she's being trolled and cyber mobs are chasing after her and doxing her and threatening rape and death. Like I've just been sad, you know, having worked so hard on, you know, convincing the C-suite Right, to do something about threats, stalking, harassment, not consensual intimate imagery. You know, Marianne Franks and I working so hard on this that I thought, oh my golly, we're undoing all of that, right? Um, and do I got to leave? <laughs> so you're making me feel a little better, I have to say. Um, so, so, so it's, and also your really interesting insight about Trump may not actually come back because he's got his own thing. Maybe he can't even. Um, my, I started to spin out the idea that he comes back and then the election disinfo that you've written so, um, you know, you've been so, you've given us this wide breadth of understanding of the ways in which election lies and even, you know, the false, the falsely, the empirically false disinfo and the way in which we deter voting that, that, uh, you know, you welcome Trump back and we've got 2022 and 2024. And I thought, oy. you know, and, and your concerns about the state legislatures, like I was coupling with that, with your concerns about mischief on the ground with us. You know, so if it's okay to invite you to talk a little bit about, maybe you're less worried about Twitter and the amping of disinfo uh, on election speech, that is, you're saying, don't be alarmist, right? Or, or don't yet flip out, <laughs> right? But but your concerns, and I'm going to let Alex pop in in a second, but, but wanted to invite you to talk just a little bit about the concerns that you're seeing as well with the state, you know, changes in state laws and changes in and pressure on state election officials and your worry about the elections themselves and the, the fairness um, that you've been documented throughout your career, but but you're seeing some even more extreme moves now. Yeah, so I'm just sticking in the chat a link to the Harvard piece. Thank um, you so much. And um, I'm very concerned. And the reason that I uh, co-founded the Fair Elections and Free Speech Center and the reason I'm going to continue this work in another form when I get over to UCLA is um, I believe that there is a great threat to the integrity of American elections, American presidential elections in 2024 and beyond. Um, I, the article is called Identifying and Minimizing uh, the Potential for Stolen Elections uh, and Election Subversion in the Contemporary United States. And I see three paths by which uh, our elections could be subverted. And I should say, I'm talking about our presidential elections because there are so many steps that take place between the time that voters vote and the time that Congress finally declares uh, who the winner is of the presidential election. And it turns out from 2020 uh, that so much of um, our system for determining who the winner of the election is uh, depends on people acting in good faith, depends on norms. So you've got a ceremonial body, for example, in Michigan that's supposed to, two Democrats, two Republicans will say, okay, Joe Biden's won the state. Well, you know, that turned out to be a major question, which it never would be in the past, uh, where one of the Republicans uh, was a um, uh, abstained on that question. The other Republican was, was pressured to not vote and it would take three votes to go forward. Um, so I talk about three potential paths to uh, changes. One is 
um, some kind of manipulation of the process, either by state legislatures uh, or by election officials. Remember, uh, what kept the 2020 election from being stolen was the courage of Republican elected, election and elected officials around the country. People who wouldn't find 11,780 votes in Georgia, or who wouldn't convene the state legislatures to come up with an alternative slate of electors that could purportedly be accepted by all these kind of things, you know, all based on, on fraudulent claims. Uh, so, so one possibility is that there's going to be some manipulation of the process that could happen at the level of Congress. Imagine Kevin McCarthy is the Speaker of the House and decides not to accept some electoral college votes, throws the election to the House under the 12th Amendment, all kinds of things can happen. Uh, a, a second uh, is a kind of legal strategy based on the independent state legislature doctrine, which um, we uh, you, you briefly alluded to, uh, which is the you know this theory that state legislatures can act in setting election rules independent of state constitution, independent of state courts, and it just kind of provides a kind of genie for uh, pulling, throwing some rules out uh, that. Um, uh, are the rules of the game for running elections and you know it does have the potential for for uh, messing uh, with um, fair elections and uh, finally um, the potential for violence and intimidation either at the level of people voting or at election officials counting votes or at congress trying to, to declare the votes are and so i run through those different scenarios after first explaining what happened in 2020 and how we were much closer to uh, the election being overturned than I think people realize. And then uh, the last part of the article talks about what kind of reforms we need. And, and following the same structure as cheap speech, it divides into talking about legal reforms like changing the Electoral Count Act, which is the set of rules that uh, govern how Congress uh, certifies the Electoral College votes uh, and rules requiring paper ballots. That is, everyone should vote on a voting machine that produces a piece of paper that could be independently recounted by a court or another body in the event of a dispute, as well as non-legal changes. <laughs> I kind of end with, uh, it may take Americans engaged in mass civil protest. I made this point in, a, in the New York Times piece as well. We might have to have a general strike. I mean, the United States democracy is something that we've taken for granted because it hasn't seriously been challenged. And I think Trump has shown that it, it's fragile and either Trump or someone else could try to manipulate that process. And so we have to be on guard. And so this is my mission for the next five years is thinking through how we both on legal and political grounds, make sure that we have a core group of central people who agree that the winner of the election should actually be declared the winner and should be able to take office, whether you like that person or not. That winner could well be Donald Trump the next time around in a fair election. I just want to assure that we have a fair election. Our, our fragility has been the most, I think, shocking. Um, you know, working through and, and working on issues like hate speech, I once thought we were so that that we were very different from other countries and, and we're no different, right? We're, we're pretty damn fragile. Okay, so um, I want to invite Alex. Um, I have more questions, but I want to invite Alex to pop in and, and ask his questions. And then invite the students too. Folks listening, please like put in the chat um, your questions for, for um, Professor Hassan. Perfect. Uh, again, Professor Hassan, thank you so much for coming to speak with us. Uh, you mentioned earlier in our talk, and I found it especially useful while reading uh, Cheap Speech, your 
analogy between campaign misinformation and disinformation to Akerlof's model of lemons and market collapse with used cars. But there's uh, this line in the book that I feel is especially insightful and which has stuck with me. And I think maybe with some others too, you say when you're relating this kind of metaphor to election disinformation and misinformation that, quote, it is as if there's a segment of the automobile market that not only tolerates, but actually demands lemons while rejecting reliable cars. And I, I was wondering if you would expand on what, you know, as a country we should do if that is in fact the case. And there's this large chunk of voters who don't actually want factual information, but would rather be presented with, uh, you know, content that merely reinforces their already stated ideologies. Yeah, it's a it's a, a fascinating question, and uh, I, sh I should say I want to credit my uh, editor at, at Yale University Press, Bill Fruct, who said it's like the it's like people who want a demolition derby. They want a car that they can destroy. You know, they're not look they're looking for a piece of junk, uh, not a reliable car. Um, so the, you know, one way of rephrasing this question is whether we have a supply problem or a demand problem. And Guy Charles, uh, a good friend of mine who's an election law professor, used to be at Duke, now he's at Harvard. Uh, he wrote a piece that was a symposium at uh, balkanization uh, on my book uh, a week and a half ago. And, and he wrote about this. And Ilya Soman, who's one of the bloggers over at the Volokh Conspiracy, who's written about political ignorance, uh, 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 agreed with Guy and, and wrote about this. If we do have a problem that is a uh, demand problem rather than a supply problem, uh, that people want misinformation, disinformation, then the kind of solutions that we uh, would look for would be different, right? Because then you're talking about potentially changing people's preferences. Um, that is, I think, kind of dangerous territory when it comes to law and shaping preferences. You know, I mean, there's this whole cast Sunstein literature on, uh, on trying to shape people's preferences, but that makes me as an election law person queasy. I'm much more of, you know, uh, 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 yeah, I think of an article by Jim Gardner, um, who's an election law professor at, at Buffalo, another friend of mine, who, it was called Shut Up and Vote, uh, which is basically like, deliberation is overrated, you should vote consistent with your interests and your values. And so what I'm concerned about is, do people get accurate information so they can do that? And so let me start with the question, why is it that people might demand misinformation, disinformation? And as I explain in Sheep's speech, I think it's not a coincidence that first Trump, his strategy relied on tearing down intermediaries. So he attacked the FBI, the press as the en enemy of the people, the opposition party, his own party, the judiciary, right? These are all truth-telling entities because what he's trying to tell to an aggrieved set of rural white voters is uh, you might be losing cultural and economic clout, um, but it's not your fault. It's someone else's fault. Like the election's been stolen from you. They're conspiring against you on COVID, whatever it is. And so the reason you might demand such messages and the reason why we do see an asymmetry right now because of the political situation, although I think that could change, where disinformation is, is sought more on the right than on the left, is because it solves a kind of cultural problem. And so for that, I'm thinking of the work of uh, Yochai Benkler and others. You, I'm sure you've talked about this in, um, in your class, the network propaganda book, that there's maybe 25 or 30% of the public that are going to be unreachable, many of them on the right, but not all on the right, who are who have this demand for misinformation. And I think they are essentially unreachable in terms of being able to try to solve this problem. So for those people 
who want the demolition derby, who are going to Twitter to fight, um, who don't want to be on Truth Social because there are no liberals to own. Um, for those people, I don't think that there's much that I can offer. My appeal is to the center. It's to those Republicans and conservatives who saw what happened on January 6th and who abhor it. Those members of Congress who are Republicans who don't publicly speak against Trump, but who privately say that you know, he's done damage to the democracy. How do you get those people? Because you have enough of them as well as a coalition of the left, cent the left in the center, then you can preserve American democracy. So there's a supply problem and a demand problem. Now, the supply problem, the demand problem is not helped by the fact that algorithms and others will provide an endless supply. And, and there's kind of a debate among the social scientists as to whether you know, being fed this stuff what makes you demand more extreme content or not. Um, you know, that people are going back and forth on that. But even setting those people aside, if they're unreachable in terms of rationality, respect for science, truth, and the rule of law, how do you keep the middle? Um, you know, and a big part of the answer to that is that we have this mismatch in our political structure. So we don't have a government like in England or in Canada where there's like a parliamentary system. Nancy Pelosi or Kevin McCarthy would be the head of the government. They enact a bunch of policies. You like them, you keep them in office. You dislike them, you throw them out. Here we have divided, right? So some of us, the president's got some power, Congress has some power, they're at loggerheads. And minority, any kind of minority, but Republicans, whatever, uh, Republicans in Congress uh, can block. And we have a judiciary that has so much control over public policy in the United States. You put all this together, this and you have state, local, and federal authority. You put all this together, there's a lack of accountability. And so that creates more problems because our political system is not really responsive. And so the question is, you know, how do you hold a coalition together when you've got a bunch of Republicans who might hate Trump, but they also don't want Joe Biden to be in power? And so you know they're going to vote for whichever Republican is at the head of the ticket. And if that Republican happens to be instead of Rob Portman, who's a kind of reasonable Republican senator from Ohio, it's going to be Josh Mandel or J.D. Vance, who are going to be another Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley, then I think you're in a very different kind of situation. And so the system doesn't allow, I mean, that's why you look at Alaska, uh, Lisa Murkowski might survive, even though she's a moderate, reasonable Republican, uh, because they have a top four primary. And so she's not going to have to please the Republican base. So, uh, sorry, that was a kind of a long, complicated answer to the demand supply question, but I think that these things are all intertwined. Alex, you want to follow up with another one? I, I, love, ask, I love that question. No, I, I do want to ask, following up on, on, on Professor D. Charles's uh, uh, discussion and that symposium, uh, I think he characterized one of your proposals as applying a ban on what he would say anyone who makes a false statement about the mechanics of voting, uh, whether it was made on TV, in a newspaper, or on social media, or website, or messaging app. And he, I think, describes himself as saying, well, I think there should be a limitation, and that such a ban should only apply to public officials, to candidates, to political parties. And I guess I want to ask you, one, do you agree with his characterization of what you said? And then two, if, if so, uh, why do you feel that that comparatively larger liabilities is, 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 is needed to begin with? So first of all, my ban is incredibly narrow. 
most of the false statements about elections would not fall into this. So Trump saying the election is rigged is not an empirically verifiable false statement or not. Rigged can mean a lot of things. Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders use the term rigged all the time, right? And even when you say an election was stolen, you know, I say it's a much harder question to talk about, you know, what about a speech ban? Washington State's talking about a speech ban on lying about a past election. That makes me much more nervous. But if you're lying and say, Democrats vote on Tuesday, Republicans vote on Wednesday, or you must have a driver's license to vote. That's covering just a tiny, tiny fraction of the kind of election-related speech that appears on these platforms. And it has the potential to disenfranchise people. So just to take a very concrete example, there's a guy that is being prosecuted under an existing federal law. There's a question of whether the federal law applies to it. But he is alleged to have directed messages to African-American voters. This was not, this is a Trump supporter, not like Donald Trump, not a, not a very famous person, directed messages to African-American voters telling them they could vote by text or by social media hashtag. And 5,000 people, according to the indictment, tried to do that. Whether they figured out in time that they couldn't do that and you know, realized they needed to vote in a different way, I don't know. But that disenfranchises people. And I'll, if it is limited to empirically verifiable false speech, then you're not really dealing with the same kind of issues of arbitrariness or discretion on the part of election officials, right? So if you made it a crime to say the election was rigged, you know, what do you mean by that? That's going to require a lot of discretion. If, if it's a lie, can you vote by text? Well, there are empirically verifiable sources. You can go to the Secretary of State's website in the state. How can you vote? You can vote by mail or you can vote in person. Here's how you register. So I don't, I'm not sure why Guy has a problem with extending it to anyone who makes these statements because they can disenfranchise lots of people. I think he wants breathing space for the First Amendment, which is great when it comes to, I think this candidate's great or this candidate's going to ruin the country, but not about these kind of specific statements. Just like people can lie all the time, but when we put them under oath in a trial and we uh, use a... Uh, 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 perjury standard, which is a very tough standard. We say, if you cross this very tough standard, we are going to uh, subject you to criminal liability because this is such an important uh, moment. So I'm not sure uh, what he, uh, you know, why he would impose that limitation when what I'm talking about is already extremely uh, limited. So I want to invite folks to join the queue. We have looks like 12 minutes left. Um, Professor Hassan, but so you have, um, there's a, a, a line in the book in the, in the markets chapter where you say, you know, we could go back to the Walter Cronkite era, but I don't want to go back there. And I have to say, I, I paused for a minute and I thought, well, if we could get rid of the misogyny and racism. Well, you know, right, but you can't. I know, but, but if we could, let's imagine that we could, right? The notion of, I guess what I've yearned for um, and what made me pause uh, in in reading that line was that, you know, what I miss, I guess we all miss are those mediating institutions, the, you know, the, the, the press that we relied on, the reliable voices, and the sense that we were, we had uh, public trust, we had institutions of public trust. So can you, might you reflect a little bit of, on that? That is, you know, um, if we could get rid of some of the pathologies, um, and I know some of your solutions, of course, are oriented toward getting money to funding local journalism, right? Um, but, but the notion that we had sort of institutions of public trust, I'm yearning for that. And so I wanted to see if I could 
push you a little. Um, and maybe I don't think you're going to change your views now, but um, but I yearn for that. I think if I could change some of our social attitudes and cultural attitudes. Oh yeah, I yearn for it too. I, mean, I think you're drawing a false dichotomy, right? One okay. is one is um, do we need institutions that we can trust and build up trust to assure that uh, people can get reliable information? That's what I want. So one example, I mentioned it briefly in my initial presentation, but let me focus on it here is bar associations. So when bar associations go after Rudy Giuliani or John Eastman or Sidney Powell for, these are all lawyers who worked for uh, or uh, allied with Donald Trump to spread election lies and try and get the courts to overturn the election based uh, or, or Congress to overturn the election based on frivolous legal theories. Um, these bar associations are kind of enforcing norms about truth telling in court. Uh, I mean, there were even things you may remember around the time of the Four Seasons Total Landscaping um, press conference uh, where that things that Rudy Giuliani wouldn't say in court. You know, we're not talking about fraud here. Um, I think that, you know, as lawyers or for your audience, future lawyers, um, you know, there's not only a, a duty of honesty, there's a duty of candor. And I think the bar associations and judges can help to do that. So all in favor of that, all in favor of, I gave the earlier example of bolstering bona fide journalism. And I talk about that seal of approval. I say, you know, Breitbart, there could be a fight over whether Breitbart gets the seal of approval or not. And that fight itself would help to educate the public about what is it that journalists do? You know, when President, uh, former President Trump says fake news, you know, what does that mean? Right. So, let, you know, let's talk about that. But that doesn't mean we want to go back to the era where they were all um, people from the same gender, demographic, uh, social, cultural background giving us the news, you know, say, and that's the way it is. Well, that's the way it was for some people, but there were a lot of stories that were not being told. Um, and so, and we want access to information. You know, one of the reasons why I'm skittish about saying that. It, you know, people say it should be a crime to lie and say it's a stolen election. It's like, well, what if there is a stolen election? You don't want to make it so that people can't say that. And you know, that could, you know, you, you kind of have to think with all of these proposals, what if the president I hate the most, whoever he or she is, gets to appoint the speech czar and that person gets to decide what's not in the public interest or what is misleading I'll talk about you know bans on misleading speech. That, that makes me very nervous. That's why I kind of try and target any kind of limits to you know really empirically falsifiable statements. I, I should say that as soon as my book came out, there was an attack on it on uh, on the Fox News website and on the Daily Mail website. Professor calls for censorship, um, which if anybody reads my book would realize that that's not at all what I'm calling for. And I think you know I, I think. Among academics, I'm a centrist on speech issues. I mean, you you, you tell me, um, but you know, just talking about the fact that our marketplace of ideas doesn't work. If truth really rose to the top, if counter speech was really the answer, you wouldn't have 70% of Republicans believing that the 2020 election was stolen. It was not stolen. That is an empirical fact. You know, as someone who studied elections for two and a half decades. I'm convinced as convinced as I could be about anything. No credible evidence has emerged of a stolen election. Okay, so truth didn't rise to the top. Now, what do we do? 
You know, and I think long term, what we need to do is bolster intermediaries while still taking advantage of all the benefits that come from cheap speech. So think about the racial justice movement and George Floyd. Would that have happened at the time of Walter Cronkite? Right. We wouldn't have had cell phones to put the video on. The police officer would have said, oh, no, the person was resisting uh, or, you know, there would be some other excuse. You know, don't believe that eyewitness. That eyewitness is incredible. But we could see it with our own eyes and then we could share that and we could organize for political action. So while I do focus on the dark side of cheap speech, there is a bright side as well. That's right. We have me too, you know, hashtag me too, um, hashtag BLM, right? No, that, that makes eminent sense to me. Um, you know, how have the, um, okay, so we have six minutes left um, uh, and I don't want to edge out our students, but as they wait to ask a question, um, you know, the, how have the defamation lawsuits gone? You know, you, you talk a bit, I, so I have two questions. One, the defamation piece, which I've been, I haven't been tracking as closely, but love to know, like sort of, if you have any inside story on some of those lawsuits, um, brought by the voting machine, you know, um, uh, and against Fox too, right. Um, by Dominion and other voting machine companies. Um, and then, um, you know, you have some faith in the labeling of deep fakes. I have no faith. You know, in some respect, I'm persuaded by your point that so that we are we want lemons, you know, lemon-like information. And so I'm not sure what labeling does for us. Um, so sorry, two questions. Yeah, well, in the defamation lawsuits, um, I do think that they can be valuable. And those suits have not gone far enough to know how successful they're going to be. But it's really interesting that a lot of First Amendment lawyers who normally side with the press are saying, oh, no, this is how defamation is supposed to work under this reckless disregard uh, standard, the actual malice standard. Um, this is you know, the, where, where, um, where we wanna be. What I criticize in the book uh, is the position of Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch that we should get rid of the actual malice standard. I think that errs too much the other way and would chill legitimate journalism and would give a cudgel for people who are trying to stop journalists from investigating and reporting on those in power, at least as to public officials and candidates, I think is the point that I would have. On the question of labeling deep fakes, you know, the social science is mixed at best about the effects of labeling. I, I agree with you. It, you know, I think the labeling, and I'm very critical of the labeling that Twitter and Facebook did of Trump's tweets during the 2020 election before he was deplatformed. I think Facebook's labels in particular, which said, learn more about elections, seem to indicate they were endorsing what Donald Trump had to say. So labels could be done badly. But, you know, California has a law regulating deep fakes that says it doesn't apply to satire. And that strikes me as completely unworkable. Who gets to decide what's satire? And is this being done by the platforms in real time? I think if you had a mechanical solution where you could label it as altered, and that's what appeared every time someone saw the video, it had the word altered on the bottom. That would at least make people think twice. You know, um, uh, I'd love to get some funding and do some experiments uh, and see if the labeling would make a difference. But I think it's better than censorship and better than nothing. That you know, that kind of you know where things fit into the uh, uh, spectrum of things. Okay, so I have one terrific qu question um, from a student in my free speech class. So in your book. She asks, you discuss the importance of increased disclosure for online political activity and acknowledge the difficulty of such requirements that, that may face in the courts. 
Many states have passed and implemented their own disclosure requirements for online political activity to increase transparency after 2016. So she asks, what impact, if any at all, do you think state disclosure rules will have on 2022 and 2024 elections? Um, that's, uh, that's a great question. I, and I haven't studied those state disclosure regimes in detail, but just to explain, they would only apply to state elections. They would not apply to candidates running for Congress or for president. So even if someone's running for Congress in a state, they're going to be subject to the federal disclosure rules. We know that disclosure matters to voters. So one example I give in the book is there was a proposition on the ballot um, about a decade ago in California where uh, the spending, I think, was 40 to 1 against, uh, in favor of the measure, and the measure still failed. It was about public, well, the public utilities could compete with private utilities. And every ad for, in favor of this measure said, you know, vote yes on this, paid for by Pacific Gas and Electric, which is one of the big utilities. And voters used that as a, as a, uh, a clue, as a cue, and they voted against the measure. We need to have clues to know how to judge the credibility of speakers. And I'm talking about speakers who spend a lot of money in elections. I'm not talking about your average neighbor who maybe supports a politically unpopular candidate, but someone spending hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, we should know who they are and they should be accountable and we can use that information. And so I'd like to see the federal government move up to where California and other states are in requiring effective disclosure of the funders, the large funders of political ads. So Alex has our final question. Hey, can you hear me? Oh, I'm back. Um, so I guess a, a, a good way to wrap this up, uh, uh, you know, cheap speech, the book comes with a subheader, uh, how disinformation poisons our politics and how to cure it yet. You know, as, as I read the book, I, I couldn't help but get the sense that these problems are a bit more acute than I uh, previously imagined. So at this point, um, please give me some hope. Is there actually any way to cure disinformation or is the best we can hope for mitigation and minimization of its effects? Yeah, you know, uh, I'm sure that your professor can tell you that book titles are a struggle between author and publisher. And I think they wanted a little hope. Uh, what I would say is that this, the, the, the disinformation in elections is a multifaceted problem. It requires a multifaceted solution. There is no on and off. It's going to be a it's going to be a constant battle, but there are tools that we could use to at least mitigate, if not cure, some of these problems, if we have the political will to get it done. And with that, thank you so much, uh, Professor Hassan. It's been such a joy to have you here. And I will keep, please, um, you write so much uh, for pop, the popular pre press, law reviews, your work is everywhere and I'm going to keep amplifying it as best I can. I'm such a big fan. So uh, thank you so much for being with us. It's been I, such a joy. I appreciate the opportunity, especially coming from you whose work I admire so much and look forward to continuing the conversation in another venue. Yes, indeed. So thank you so much. Thanks UVA Law and thank you um, Peter Conklin for making, and Rebecca Clapp for making this all possible. Good luck so on your you. finals. Uh, yes, go get them, guys. <laughs> Wahoo! <-wah. laughs>